This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. <sighs> visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Uh, by 1890, there was 60,000 gallons of horse piss in the streets mm-hmm. and 500,000 pounds of horse shit in the streets every single day. <laughs> and they said on uh, rainy days, there was this nasty wet sewage that you had to have the skills of an acrobat to hop across the street to not step in. And on dry days, <laughs> mm-hmm. the horses trampled across the street and put all of this uh, biohazard material into the air, and it blew through everyone's windows and into their houses and into their food, and people were getting deathly ill. What could the government have done to solve that? The government? I mean, they probably would have restricted the number of horses on the streets would be my my first guess. Right, and you know what the free market did? Henry Ford said, hey, let's get rid of horses. Here's a better way. And it get hot. I got a lot of I got hairy legs that turn that 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 that, that turn uh, uh, um, blonde in the sun. And the kids used to come up and reach in the pool and rub my leg down so it was straight and then watch the hair come back up again. They look at it. So I learned about roaches. I learned about kids jumping on my lap. With your host, Mike Paul. And I've loved kids jumping on my lap. All right, Andy. Well, welcome to the very first episode of Paul's to the Wall, yeah, formerly the, known the, <laughs> formerly known as uh, the Mike Paulcast. I, I briefly joined the Mike Paulcast, and apparently we had some technical difficulties. So I'm glad to join Paul's to the Wall for the inaugural episode. Well, you know that episode will be you know someday they'll archive that as like the lost tapes. Going <laughs> to be like the Jimi Hendrix album that is his record label hold on to. Dude, that was such a great episode, too. I was so pissed when um, the audio just, like, there was, like, a Zoom technical difficulty where your audio sounded fine to me through my headphones, and then I went to go edit it, and you're, you're like, seven decibels quieter than myself. Yeah, no. You you sent it to me, and I tried to to work with it, too, and it was, like, just completely unusable. (laughs) So, unfortunately. Zoom isn't the savior, we thought. The good news is... You know, we got to redo it and um, also got to bring Nick in this time, which should make for a more fun conversation. But, Andy, the reason I brought you on, um, I think we should first start with how you and I met in the first place, which I believe was through the part of the problem inner circle from Dave Smith. Yeah, I was uh, I was promoting. Yeah, right. Rest in peace. I forgot about that. I was promoting a um, an event my company was putting on with um, Judge Napolitano. And I just post in there, I'm like, hey, if there's any libertarians that are interested in this event, like, you know, I'll get you a good price. And and both you, both of Glenn you Beck. ended up coming. Yeah. It was Glenn Beck, not Napolitano. Oh, Napolitano was a different one. It was Glenn Beck. Yeah. Sorry. I'm, I'm mixing up. I would up have rather seen Napolitano, but yeah, Napolitano was pretty good, to be honest. <laughs> like, But yeah, you both ended up coming. I hooked you up with some free drinks. It was a good time. It was a great time. Yeah, um, no, it was. 
That was a lot of fun. Um, and you know what's funny is I think – well, Mike, when when I was in high school, I remember Glenn Beck was the first guy that I really heard that had a different way of looking at things, not just like that standard Sean Hannity kind of conservative ink thing. So yeah. Glenn Beck was actually uh, – you know, he actually thought outside the box, and I think he got himself kicked off of Fox News. It's still unclear exactly what happened. Yeah. But, uh, but he was one of the first guys that really opened my eyes and made me think about things a little bit differently. Yeah, no, I and mean, he's such a um a brilliant historian. I mean, his understanding of the of the revolution in area. Um, but that yeah, he, like I really uh learned to respect him even more seeing him live after he talked about um all his like historian knowledge of the founding fathers and everything. I was like, Whoa, this guy is way more than I saw on TV. Like he is a historian. Yeah, I had never actually seen him talk before that event and, and when he went through the declaration of independence it went through like the historical intricacies behind it it was like this is actually really interesting so i definitely learned a lot about him during that but yeah he's pretty great yeah so andy the, the one thing i wanted to ask you um speaking on the one thing that you really specialize in uh, is climate change yes so i need to ask you just because before covid there was a time when the left was obsessed with a different agenda other than people wearing masks and getting vaccines. And that was the earth will be uninhabitable in the year 2030. Okay. I have interesting commentary about this. I was going to ask you, is that true? Okay. Well, first off, no, the world will not be uninhabitable by the year 2030, but here's actually what I do find interesting. So leading up to COVID, the left for decades has tried to use climate change as their conduit to institute just, uh, incredibly draconian policies on all of us, you know, whether through carbon taxes or just, just in general, that it was their conduit and it failed. Like voters, as much as we're told that we care about climate change, like voters really don't care about climate change. I mean, you look at France when they tried to institute a minor gas tax and then the yellow jackets came out and they rioted. Like people, people will say they care until it actually hits their wallets and they, they don't care much. And then COVID happened. And COVID was the opportunity that climate change never presented for them. COVID, they actually were able to control human behavior. And it was a good enough scare story, while climate change just wasn't. But I don't know. I find it very interesting. Like, everything that climate change failed to be, COVID ended up succeeding. And now they're going to piggyback off of COVID and try to use climate change as the reason to keep these policies in place. But no, the world is not going to end by 2030. I was I did a video today about Greta Thunberg and how she says by the year 2030, we're going to set off an uh, ir- irreversible set of events that is going to be lead towards like a mass extinction event. If that's actually true, first off, no one would care about student debt. No one would care about free healthcare. We're going to die. Like who who cares about any of that? But no, the, the world is not ending <laughs> to be clear. Right. And I think I told you uh, last time we spoke, which uh, will be archived in the lost tapes. Yeah, the lost um, tapes. <laughs> I had a, uh, a left-wing friend on, on Facebook uh, before I got rid of it last year Um who was on a vendetta to wake people up about how the earth will be ending in the year 2030. And he's my age and he has kids my age. And he was terrified that his kids will never know the planet that he knew because they won't be able to survive by the time they're 10 years old. Um, And it was like four solid weeks where it was daily, daily posts about all this science. Yeah. uh, Capital S science. Um, that supported that the earth will be uninhabitable because all these greedy capitalists are just, you know, pumping uranium into our rivers and trying (laughs) to kill us all off. And 
he kept doing that, kept doing that, and I just like whatever. I just I'm not going to fight this because clearly you're you're <laughs> have your heart set on this. But then one day he put an article up about how by the year 2030 it will be impossible to become a millionaire because all of the wealthiest one percenters will have all the cash, so there will be it'll be impossible for anybody to become a millionaire by the year 2030. And I was like, well, shit. Now I got to comment. So I commented, and I was like, dude, I just got to say. I thought the earth was ending in 2030. Yeah. <laughs> and that's all I said. And he commented and he goes, Mike, it's very possible that two bad things can be happening at once. <laughs> and I said, I agree. However, if the t- Titanic is sinking, would you really be worried about the guy next to you having a nicer watch? Is that really an issue? <laughs> and, uh, he didn't want to say to that. He just kind of started like posting a bunch of articles and stats to why the earth is ending. Um, but yeah. once again, like you said, why is the minimum wage an issue? Why is anything else an issue, but this meteor crashing into the earth and killing us all. So for the political elites, I, I don't think they think the world's actually ending. Like Greta Thunberg, the little Swedish girl, the 17 year old Swedish girl. I think she actually thinks the world is ending and I wish she didn't. Cause she seems to be deeply disturbed by that. Now, your John Kerry's, your Joe Biden's, I don't think they think the world's actually ending. I think it's just a means to an end for them. But it's the people like your your high school friend that go out on Facebook that like actually believe the world is ending, but apparently haven't comprehended the fact that then these other issues don't matter if that's true. Like you're you're right. If if the Titanic is sinking, who cares who's got the, the nicer watch or the bigger room? Like we're we're all gonna freaking die. <laughs> like well, it's, you um, know, this is sorry, go ahead. No, no, go for it. Go for it. Well, I was going to say, this is what is so common when talking to people on the left, where they're so used to controlling the Overton window of the discussion that the minute you kind of remove it, they just short circuit. So it's, you know, when you're talking about how you posted uh, the article or he, he just started posting articles, it's they're so used to changing the rules to the game. Here's what we're talking about. And here's the allowable debate, which is almost nothing. And the minute you kind of take a step back and look at the bigger picture with them or try to present them with an alternative point of view, they just short circuit and start start kind of spazzing out on you. Well, you're absolutely right. Like part of me thinks that the idea of the Green New Deal wasn't actually to institute it into actual law. It was purely to shift the Overton window. Like let's come out with something so radical that moves us just so far to one side that we can recenter the discussion more in the direction that we want to go. I think you're absolutely right about that. Yeah, it, it, it is crazy because they really just keep moving the goalposts uh, with the argument. And then now that COVID's hit, like I haven't heard too much about climate. However, the one thing I'm very concerned about was how clean the air got in Los Angeles and in like Venice, like, you know, in yeah. Italy, the waterways dolphins return to and everything. Um I'm afraid that will be used against us in the future. Like, hey, if we all lock inside our houses and shut down the economy, look how clean the environment got. So now instead of a pandemic, we have a climate emergency. We have to lock down for the sake of the climate. Everyone stay inside. Stop driving your cars. Stop going to work. How possible is that? Okay, so that's what I think a lot of people miss here. Like the the entire discussion for the better part of decades has been about carbon dioxide emissions. It's been about CO2, which personally, I don't think is the driver behind our climate. Like the amount of CO2 in the actual atmosphere is a minuscule amount. And the amount that we contribute to that is even less. 
And if you look in terms of historical CO2 levels, we're actually in a lower trend than, than much of like Earth's history. So CO2 levels are, are generally considered low if you consider the entire history of the Earth. But um, there are actual environmental concerns that we should we should think about. Now, if for dolphins coming back to Italy or something, it's a cost benefit thing. Like if if people are locked in their homes, their their economy is destroyed and people have lost all their money. Well, dolphins coming in the river is cool. I think you have to consider like what what's the cost of that. Um, but overall, I think a lot of people lose the um, their perspective on what envi- actual environmental concerns are. And in the past, environmental concerns have generally been preserving the, the most land, while today environmental concerns are generally emitting the least amount of CO2. I think we've lost our direction on that. I think we should go back towards looking at preserving the most land and using minimal amounts of space for energy generation. And uh, I've talked about this in the past, but if we actually decided to move towards entirely renewable energy and away from conventional forms of energy, which are your coal, your natural gas, you'd have to use a massive amount of land to actually generate all this energy. The benefits of coal and natural gas are you can generate a massive amount of energy and a minimum amount of space. So environmentalists have lost the idea of what environmentalism actually is. So if we move towards entirely renewable energy, we'd have to cover much of the United States with, with windmills, with solar panels, and we'd absolutely, we'd destroy nature. We'd have to destroy forests. We'd destroy ab- animal habitats. It would be environmentally destructive versus just using a couple of maybe in a way less clean, but overall for the greater environment, way cleaner uh, conventional energy forms. Now, one thing that when we're talking about kind of uh, blowing apart the Overton window, one guy that really blew my mind on the whole climate change thing uh, a few years ago was the first time I heard him. <clears throat> Actually, I'm not sure I'm not sure what year it was, but it's Randall Carlson uh, yeah. with Graham Hancock on Joe Rogan's podcast where, I mean, I love listening to guys like Alex Epstein that make like the utilitarian <laughs> argument uh, yeah. for fossil fuels. But Randall Carlson just gives you this long-term view, like, hey, here's the the hundreds of thousands of years span that we're talking about and how there is no Goldilocks condition for the earth. There are volcanic eruptions and meteoral impacts that just completely change things. Like there was an ice yeah. age and a time the earth was covered in jungle, you know, without mm-hmm. any internal combustion engine ever created. And yeah. like I've, I've tried to bring this up to uh, left-wing people before. And they just, they just, you know, their eyes glaze over and they just change the subject about, you know, some kind of carbon tax. Like there's, there's no, like, and to me, it's just intensely interesting to kind of look at things from a different point of view. And it, it, the people who are the most politically active have no interest in, in examining it from other points of view. I mean, yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Like as people have lost the idea of what environmentalism is and they're just so hyper-focused on carbon dioxide. And carbon dioxide is a trace atmosphere and or a trace gas in the atmosphere. And the, the amazing thing is, as carbon dioxide levels have risen in the atmosphere, we've actually seen a greening of the earth in terms of just general vegetation as well as crop growth. So one thing I've covered in the past is called crop yields. So crop yields are essentially how many crops you grow in a specific area of space. So we'll just talk about like an acre. So as carbon dioxide levels have risen in the atmosphere, Crop yields across the globe in both rich and poor nations alike have risen. So it's not due to technology because poor poor nations are seeing this too. So uh, literally across the globe in the most uh, important crops, which are grain, rice, and wheat, we are seeing um, crop yields increase in every nation. So, So carbon dioxide has actually led to more food content across the globe 
But no one, no one wants to talk about any of those benefits. They just want to talk about how carbon dioxide is going to lead towards this catastrophe, which we are not seeing. Yeah, that, that just pokes a hole in their whole worldview. So if you do that, it just like kind of pulls a string on the sweater and the whole sweater comes unraveled. So it's like, I can't even go there. I'm not going to acknowledge that that thread is even loose. Because yeah. if you pull that, there's there's nothing left to their argument. Um, so the one thing um, I mentioned to you before, back on the Lost Tapes. Yeah. <laughs> rest in peace. Rest in <laughs> um, peace. Um, was that, like, I'm a an enthusiast uh when i as far as history goes for the industrial revolution um particularly automotive the the years where horse and buggy transitioned into internal combustion transportation um the one thing i never heard about in high school uh history or any sort of uh public education until i started reading and studying myself was the amount of like the unstable environment that cities dealt with before the car came into existence. Um, I was looking at uh, a book I read uh, called Drive by Lawrence Goldstone, and he pointed out some stats that really blew my mind, and I cannot believe that they were not in every single history book in every single high school class across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, he pointed out the population increase from New York City, or this is, I think it's Manhattan particularly, um, from 1840, the population was 515,000. By 1890, it was 1,515,000. So it tripled in population in 40 years. Yeah. Um, and the one thing that mankind had never had to grapple with was living in this close of quarters with a horse. And everyone used a horse. The milkman, the guy who delivered your vegetables, the coroner, the police, the firemen, everyone used horses. So every single day uh, by 1890, there was 60,000 gallons of horse piss in the streets and 500,000 pounds of horse shit in the streets every single day. And they said on uh, rainy days, there was this nasty wet sewage that you had to have the skills of an acrobat to hop across the street to not step in. And on dry days, (laughs) the horses trampled across the street and put all of this uh, biohazard material into the air and it blew through everyone's windows and into their houses and into their food and people were getting deathly ill. What could the government have done to solve that? The government? I mean, they probably would have restricted the number of horses on the streets would be my, my first guess. Right. And you know what the free market did? Henry Ford said, hey, let's get rid of horses. Here's a better way. Yeah. And that's that's kind of where I stand with climate change now. I don't know what's going on with everything, but I know the free market and, you know, people buy efficiency. If if they believe something is dangerous, they will vote with their dollars to something more efficient and, and beneficial to their society, their town, their family, uh, their immediate life. Um, and that's what I see right now is like, what can Joe Biden or, or, or AOC or any one of these, you know, Bernie Sanders, any radical left person, these people that, what is the DMV or the VA going to do for my air and water quality better than the free market? I mean, you can, first off, you look at China, which is the most centralized economy that, you know, that's major. I I don't want to say it's the most centralized economy in the world because there's obviously Venezuela or North Korea, but for as terms of like world superpowers go, it's probably China. And the first time I went to China, literally, I landed on a plane and there was so much pollution. I couldn't even see the other end of the plane. 
So it's it, you hear stories of people that say like, oh, China's the answer. Like they're building all these these windmills and stuff. It's like, no, that that place in terms of a centralized economy, which apparently cares about the climate, like you can't even see a hundred feet. But um, yeah, I, like as far as Joe Biden and AOC and what they're gonna do, they're gonna institute, you know, potentially a green new deal, which is essentially like we we're gonna we're gonna rely on the technologies that we currently have, which are solar and which are wind energy. And we're going to bring these up to such a scale that apparently we can power the entire United States economy with them. But there's also an acknowledgement within the Green New Deal that we we can't possibly do this. I mean, it calls to to fund or to fund the research of new technologies and essentially new battery storage because there's the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. Surprise, surprise. So there's an admittance in it that we we can't possibly do it, but they pretty much want to bank on current technologies, which is like a, a akin to your example. Like they would have restricted horses or something instead of relying on new things that we could have developed. That's what they want to do now. They want to rely on things that already exist that aren't efficient instead of looking towards free market answers, which will probably move us towards more clean energy and more efficient energy down the it's line. A, that's a great point because I, I'm, I'm in the middle of reading a book we, we talked about with the the Gene Epstein uh, episode. Um, there's a book called How Innovation Works by Matt Ridley. Yeah. And it's fascinating. He goes through, he goes from like the 1700s on to modern day, like nuclear technology, steam engine, internal combustion, everything about how it works and how it's free markets and, and free enterprise that um, creates fertile ground for these innovations to, you know, come to the forefront. Yeah. Um, the one thing he, he brought up was, uh, when fluorescent lights became uh, prevalent in society, they uh, use it uh, as far as the government goes to mandate it and give all these combat incentives for all these businesses to use fluorescent lights. And everyone bid onto these programs and spent all this money. And after they went through all this setup to for all these businesses to shift to fluorescent lights, the LED was in- invented through the free market. <laughs> And it's like they were trying to do fluorescent to do with it, do with incandescent, and all they had to do was leave it to the free market. But they wasted like billions of taxpayer dollars to shift all these businesses to fluorescent, which lasted for like ten minutes. Huh. And yeah, I've actually like, never heard that. Yeah, so I, was, I I heard that part of the book, and I was like, oh my gosh! Like I was like, I just like like scream from a mountaintop to like everyone on the left, like stop trying to use government to fix shit. Like, leave it to the market, you know? And, you know, that's where it's it's frustrating because even with something like you look at the emission standards and uh, miles per gallon uh, mandates that the auto companies are being put under, it's like, you know, people want better gas mileage. Everybody wants better gas mileage. And the car companies are trying to produce cars that get better gas mileage. It's There's, there's no incentive that you can change there if you're the government, if you truly want better fuel efficiency. It's like if you go to a restaurant and somebody's going to a, a burger joint and you're like, no, you restaurant, you better make the best damn burger you can for this guy. And yeah. the customer's like, yeah, that's that's kind of the deal. I want to mm-hmm. eat the best burger and he wants to make me the best burger. And if, if he's the best burger, I will pay him. So there's yeah. this is already in place, you know, and if you're buying a truck, that's not what you're looking for. But you're not going to outlaw trucks. It, it Everything is, you know, the whole point of free market capitalism is you're trying to make something the most efficient way possible. So oh, yeah, the idea that some third uh, third party authoritarian is going to come in and streamline that process just at face value, if you look at just the concepts, is laughable. 
And that's exactly we, we brought this up in the last time we talked, Andy, and I, I just want to jump in right here um, because it's so fitting. Um, was the uh, the automotive relationship to that was how you know internal combustion is dirty, and I am the biggest muscle car fan you'll ever meet. I I grew up restoring like 60s and 70s muscle cars, like, you know, Pontiac GTOs and, and Oldsmobile 442s. Like, I love the big block, eight mile per gallon, <laughs> 500 horsepower engines. But, you know, the reason why they were getting eight miles per gallon while making, you know, 350 to 400 horsepower was because they were inefficient. Like, they're a cool, you know, pinpoint in history. I love looking at them going, well, this is fascinating. This is why we are where we are today because these guys did this back then with what they had. But, they're not, I mean, they're inefficient. They're just, they're very heavy and they get terrible gas mileage and they waste a bunch of fuel and they, they gas you out when you start them up. Cause there's so much wasted fuel when they're, when they're burning them. But like I had a, uh, a 2000 Corvette uh, a few years ago, and this is a 20 year old car now that's supercharged. Uh, it was a aftermarket supercharger on it and it made 600 horsepower at the crank 512 at the wheels and driving down the highway, I got 29.6 miles per gallon which is would have been witchcraft to anyone in the sixties. Like to tell like a guy making like driving a 67 GTO in 1967, like, Hey, you're making 338 horsepower. How about 512 at the wheels and 30 miles per gallon, like double what those Japanese cars are getting. Like they'd be like, that's magic or witchcraft. <laughs> it's, not, it's not possible, but that just happened through the free market while dealing with you know, an incredible amount of government regulation in the auto industry. Um, not to mention like all the cafe standards and everything like the, yeah. the, the auto industry is not very, really a, a free market. It's, it's yeah. a free market that's extremely strangled by government, but it still prevailed that fast. And yeah, with the, with the cafe standards or corporate average fuel economy, which is kind of related to what Nick was saying, like pretty much mandated certain miles per gallons. What they ended up doing was uh, lowering the weights of cars and they actually found an increase on uh, like deaths on the road just due to accidents when that happened because they pretty much had to lower the weights of all cars, which made them a little bit less safe so they could hit this miles per gallon standard. And then more people ended up dying. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Like there's always unintended consequences to these things. Dude, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Right, yeah. Like, uh, wait, what's that? Oh, that's a great saying. I, I, I wish I remember where that came from. I don't know. Yeah, but to it's, me, like, it's just like a, it's just an old, old uh, saying. I, I don't know who came up with it, but I think yeah, I, heard yeah, I mean, gra- it's, I think it's our grandfather one. told to me first when I was a little kid and I just stuck huh. with me and I was like, and then I started seeing it everywhere. I'm like, yeah, every time people try to help with good intentions, it causes way worse unintended consequences. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. Which is why I became a free market capitalist. Like, right. leave it. Let people vote with their dollars. Everything works <laughs> out better that way. People make the best judgment at the individual level and that translates to the economy. Stop. Yeah, that seems to to be a recurring that seems to be a recurring theme on this podcast is that everyone thinks that they're the good guy. And I know like even Dave Smith has made this point a a bit, but it's like it's always worth wondering, have you ever considered that you're the bad guy? You know, I think Michael Malice talks about that, too. But it's yeah, I mean, everyone thinks that they're doing like Hitler thought he was the good guy. He was pretty convinced that what he was doing was going to lead to the, the, you know, the most long term human flourishing possible. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's of course, it doesn't mean that if you if you think that you're the good guy, then you're the bad guy. It's just, you know, you need to really play out at what you're advocating for and examine it from all angles and really have like an honest, sober discussion about what you're advocating for. That's a really interesting thought experiment. Like, so everyone thinks they're the good guy, which I think you're, you're right about, 
So it just at, at that point, I guess it comes down to me, like, are you the good guy for the masses? Or are you good, the good guy for the individual? And I think all of us here are more focused on individual rights than like, you know, best for the masses. Best for the masses would be if seven people are sick and one person's healthy and you can save all seven people by killing one person. You sit, you, you know, you kill the one person and save the seven and you harvest their organs. I, I mean, I don't, that's an extreme example, but I think right. all well, of us here. It's a thought experiment though. Yeah, 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 I think it's that. fitting. Um, well, so Andy, so we're, we're approaching the half hour mark. So yeah. I think it's time we try to unpack the reason I first wanted to have you on is the red, I mean, the green new deal and yeah. uh, what it's all about. And, uh, you know, what do you know about it? That uh, what, Okay. What so I, I've done a I've done a lot of research on the Green New Deal recently, and what I have found well, first off, just to give a, a brief overview, the Green New Deal is a climate plan plan introduced by Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and Ed uh, Markey or something. I, I don't know. Malarkey is the word that's coming to my mind, but I think that's because <laughs> of the recent <laughs> Joe Biden campaign. Malarkey. Malarkey. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's a it's a in theory climate plan intended to. Uh, essentially changed the entire United States towards a zero carbon emission future. Now, in reality, it's it's way more than a climate plan. And this was revealed by Saikat Chakrabarty, uh, AOC's chief of staff, when he said like, oh, you all think this is a climate thing? Like, that's not how it started. It started as a remake the entire economy thing. And then it morphed into a climate thing as the reason why we need to remake the economy. But the, the Green New Deal would literally be the most expensive plan we've ever put into um, American law. So to give a couple of uh, numbers on this, the American Action Forum estimates that the Green New Deal will cost every American household $65,000 per year. So whether it's through taxes or increased costs in other ways, like, I mean, that's that's a crap load of money. <laughs> like, like, We can all swing that, right? I, mean, I don't like, think I don't think it. we can all swing that. Personally, <laughs> I cannot swing that. I don't know about you two, but 65. No. Yeah. Um, overall, it's estimated the price tag could reach $93 trillion in 10 years. Um, this comes from the Mercatus <laughs> Center. But yeah, I mean, what are we, $27 trillion in debt right now? Like we can, you know, fling another $9 trillion per year or $93 trillion in 10 years. I mean, it's the most expensive plan in, in, in all of history. But it calls for upgrading all buildings to be more energy efficient which would require essentially probably eliminating windows, changing doors. You'd have to upgrade all of your appliances, like your, um, your, your washing machine, your dryer, your dishwasher. Everyone's going to have to upgrade all those. The the costs associated with the green new deal are just exuberant. And then nowhere in the green new deal, do they actually intend, do they say how they intend on paying for any of this? So there's, there's numerous, like we need to do this. We need to do this. We don't know how we're going to pay for it. Now, AOC has said they'll create public banks, which I'm sure all of us aren't fans of. Wow. Yeah. No. A lot of Federal Reserve printing. <laughs> yeah. Right. No. Well, that's it. That, like the Federal Reserve will issue more credit. We'll create public banks. Uh, we'll have to increase taxes massively on every single person in the United States. It's a uh, it's a complete socialist takeover of the entire economy is what it is. Yeah, I mean, money is just paper, right? I mean, you just print as much as you want, and there's no unintended consequences with that either. Like, yeah, I mean, check out, check out Germany after the Treaty of Versailles. <laughs> like that works. Yeah, it's, that. it's cheaper than wallpaper to put on your wall. Yeah, and this so. is this is something where if if somebody's interested in politics, it's you know, especially if if you're a political activist, like if you're very loud and vociferous about your opinions, 
I mean, you better know your stuff. And if, if you're talking about programs that you want instituted on the federal level, you should have just a very basic understanding of what the United States federal budget is like. Like, okay, what's the current deficit? What's the the total national debt? What is the interest on the debt? And how does that change if interest rates move up 2%? Like you should have just, that's just basic. That's like, you could, you don't need to to take in a, a you know, an economics course. It's like, just look at it in terms of your household. Like just look at it the exact yeah. same way. And, you know, I had a friend on Facebook, as long as we're on that subject, that's very uh, politically active as a leftist. And he's talking about constantly, you know, universal health care and, and free college and absolving college debt. And he posted a meme uh, that was on, I think it was the other 98%, which is a huge, huge page with millions of followers. And it said something like, you know, uh, churches cost U.S. taxpayers seven and a, they cost them seven and a half billion dollars a year. Um, you know, it's time to tax the churches. And I remember and he said, and then, you know, part of it was um, when you realize or then somebody commented uh, that was in the meme and it said, when you realize that we could give everybody free college and healthcare, if we just taxed these theocrats and hmm. I, I go, wait, $7.5 billion. And you think that's enough to institute Medicare for all and absolve <laughs> college debt? Like, Guys, that's that's a rounding error to the to the yeah. federal government. That's nothing. It's literally nothing. <laughs> like, I can actually, actually, I can sorry. give you the number on that. No, go for it, Mike. I was gonna say the other part about that is like you act as if you tax the churches. Like, okay, go for it, tax them. Do you really think that's going to be used for benevolent purposes? <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, we, got I mean, we all know technology. where it's going to go. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Andy. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I was going to say. So, so the Mercatus Center actually estimates that the healthcare provision within the Green New Deal, which is just universal healthcare, will cost thirty-two trillion dollars over ten years. So you're saying, you know, eight billion? It's thirty-two trillion. <laughs> so sounds there's like, sounds like a bargain, a, dude. Yeah, there's a couple zeros <laughs> in between that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we'll just text uh, the rich. We'll make it work. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's never, it's never failed in history ever. So, Andy, uh, what exactly made you take such an interest in climate change in the first place? Like above all issues, like because there's a uh, lot that I, I, there's a lot of hills I want to die on. Um, yeah. Climate change is one that for me, it's like it's kind of like I did I did an episode with the scientist Greg Morin a couple episodes back about the masks, and it's like yeah. you know I think the mask thing is way blown out of proportion. I still wear one. Yeah. You know, when I go out and, and, you know, to be honest, this probably this is the story of the one as a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently to the untrained ear. Everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call click Granger.com or just stop by Granger. For the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. A shocker to you, you don't know this. I drive a Prius, um, <laughs> but not because of the same reasons people drive Priuses. I drive a Prius because I have six people in my family with a single income and, you know, I got to stretch every dollar. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but so, yeah, like, I'm an environmentalist if I want to play that card, but I'm not. Um, I, the only green I do it for is, you know, in my wallet. Um, 
But what exactly made you want to die on that hill? Because I, I never get too hard uh, vested, even though I know that it's being used for political gain. And that's the first thing I smell when people start telling me, like, if you just take more money out of your paycheck, the air is going to be cleaner. And I'm just like, fuck you. No, <laughs> like nothing yeah. works that way. Just stop taking my money. <laughs> yeah. So honestly, it, it happened when I was, I believe, in like seventh or eighth grade. I was living in London and uh, our science teacher showed the film An Inconvenient Truth to all of us, which I'm sure all of you were shown in you know middle school or high school or at least saw. Everyone's seen it. But uh, I was watching that film and it was all this stuff about Al Gore and like how he grew up on a, a farm, which, you know, was a tobacco farm and how he had such a rough life. And it's like, and now we're going to all go underwater and we need to do this, 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 and this. I was watching. I'm like, this is the most manipulative film I've ever seen. Like, I didn't know anything about climate. I didn't know anything about Al Gore or politics. All I knew is I was sitting there. I was like, this is deeply manipulative. Like something's going on here. So uh, I remember leaving that class and talking to my friends. I'm like, did anyone else find that weird? Like, like there's something wrong with this film. And they were like, no, this is this is the issue of our time, climate change. And I'm like, I don't I don't know if this is the issue of our time. Like, I, I don't know about this. <laughs> so I ended up just kind of like digging into that. And I, uh, I read a book called Why Scientists Disagree About Global Warming, which I thought was fantastic. And then I've read some books by uh, Steve Gorham, which are which are just great. But overall, like. It was that film what sent me not just on the journey of climate change, but sent me towards like libertarianism. Just like, okay, so I I can tell that whatever Al Gore is preaching is not the answer. Everything he preached in that film ended up not coming true. Like we don't have, you know, hundreds of millions of climate refugees. We've actually seen less climate refugees as uh, temperatures have increased. So that's an interesting data point. But um, there was there was just that's that's what like pushed me towards this. So then I ended up going work to work for an organization that was like at the forefront of saying we're not all going to die. Uh, and and that's what's led me here today. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense because I yeah, I mean, I saw uh, Inconvenient Truth when I was in eighth grade, too. Um, and I took a class called environmental science. Um, and I think the reason I took that class, um, I didn't know that it was going to be propaganda. I just didn't want to take. Uh, either biology or um, something like less interesting in science where I was like, I was, I was like 11 years old. I'm like, I, you know, whatever's like, easiest. I, yeah. I'm super interested in physics and everything. Now I probably would have done, but not through a public education forum. Like <laughs> I would have like, found a podcast or something, <laughs> but, but um, I took environmental cause I heard it was easy and, and like we had to watch that. And yeah, I felt the same way, just like dirty. Cause I, I, I had no like skin in the game and didn't have any argument to fight it in my, with my teacher about but i knew my dad was not a fan of al gore all through the 90s and rising yeah. as bush like um like i i knew like al gore was like a dirty word in my house so i'm like <laughs> well why does this guy like get the ability to talk to me and all my class if me and probably 40 to 50 percent of the people in my class their parents feel the same way as my dad like why, why do i have to listen to his point of view only without anyone else giving a contrary yeah, and, and unimpeded is the most frustrating thing. And I mean, in general, I've been coming to this conclusion with documentaries. I'm just, I'm not a fan of documentaries in general, or I should say less and less, because almost every documentary filmmaker has an agenda, whether I agree with it or not, they're they're not posing any points of view. And I feel like if somebody doesn't have an opinion on a subject, and then they watch one documentary, and they have their opinion, like their heels are dug in almost always <laughs> they've been propagandized like it, it is a propaganda tool and sometimes it's like Dude. if i can propagandize somebody with the right stuff then you know i i have no issue with it but 
if you're going to be serious about trying to get to the objective truth about something, documentaries are by by far the worst format, in my opinion. And, you know, that that's like something that's been really been bothering me uh, a lot lately is, um, you know, we did away with cable television um, a couple of years ago. My wife and I, we moved in together uh, probably four years ago. So all we've really had is like Netflix and, and Amazon Prime. And, you know, we subscribed like HBO or something through Amazon. And there are so many just phenomenal series. Like you watch these shows, they're just like so oh, yeah. addicting. You can't stop watching them. But every single one of them, and I mean every single one, there is not one exception to this rule yet that does not have a radical left-wing agenda just uh. planted in there somewhere. Like they get you hooked on it. Then by episode five, it's like they just have a gay couple, like Did- just being main characters or a non-binary gender person or or it's just all this and climate change stuff and gun control stuff like can you just can i just escape political shit for 10 minutes but they can't because it's hollywood and it's just like like the university system just has bled into hollywood so deeply now that that's where we're at did you watch ozark Yes. I remember like episode four or five. I like, know what oh, you're talking about. Right? Obama. I miss Obama. Yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. speaking of Ozarks, you remember the episode where um so their son who's like like thirteen or fourteen. Yeah. That, that that uh son of the waitress or bar owner or whatever or whatever it is, that the kid's like mentally disabled to a certain yeah. level. And they're in Missouri. And like the, the other kid who's too young to buy a gun was nervous to buy a gun and he's like can you buy it because you're 18 so like he's like clearly mentally disabled and walks yeah. into a gun store he's like can i buy a gun and they're like the guy's like sure do you want yeah. some extra high capacity magazines for it <laughs> yeah i was just like i just shut the tv off to my wife I was like i can't watch this shit yeah like, it's just like man like uh, you just, know, know Borat, the new Borat movie. I don't know oh, if you guys have both watched it, but I it's like it. that. It, there, there was a lot. I mean, Borat carries some nostalgic value to me because I think I was uh, like 14 when I or no, I was probably 13 when I saw the first one. So I thought it was hilarious. And it's it, to me, it's a lot like Adam Sandler movies, where even if if I just came across it for the first time as an adult, I would think it was childish. But still, some of it just tugs at my heartstrings. But there were yeah. so many moments in that one too, where it's like this is a clear, just kind of political. Uh, joust that you're trying to throw into this and it just you could tell when something feels artificial like it's you're you're injecting something that doesn't belong it's not an organically funny point like a comedian would make no seriously like i I feel like comedy in general has been reduced by the trump era like everyone just became so hyper focused on hating trump that like the the bar for something funny just went down for half the united states it's like as long as you hate trump it's like oh this is funny now and and, and it's and it's applause not laughter yeah, no, I actually think that that's a good saying. I like that. It's applause, not laughter. But uh, yeah, Borat 2 was such a letdown for me. I mean, that was just the biggest political hit job. I, I've like, you know. Yeah, and I mean, the, the Giuliani thing to me, it's like, of course, the timing. They released that still frame while the Hunter Biden laptop, which I mean, that story's completely gone missing. But yeah, they released yeah, right. that. And then it's like, OK, gathering that if I'm just being completely objective, because I have no love for Rudy Giuliani. I don't care. Yeah. I'm just going to look at this objectively. Yeah. And to me, it's like, yeah, I think I think what happened was uh, he's he's he was divorced last year. He's in his late 70s. Yeah. This cute young girl's hitting on him. He doesn't this is think what that I she's think 15 happened. and she's not, you know, and, and she's being 40 a shit with him. And 
he probably planned on doing something in the room with her, but they presented it as girl who's playing uh, Borat's 15 year old daughter. You know, Rudy Giuliani does this thing and it's like, no, he didn't think she was 15. You're playing yeah. with words there to make it sound worse than it is. No, she was like, she was like, OK, it's like you're this older, as you said, a 70 year old guy. And this really hot, like young girl just starts coming at you and you're like jackpot. <laughs> like I, <laughs> I don't I don't blame the guy for thinking he like thinking he might get something like well he was divorced too right i mean mean, extremely sleazy like i I mean super disappointed that's my father or grandfather doing that i'd be like well yeah it'd be weird but giuliani there's no crime like great tan in his dyed hair a guy who's dying his hair who's the former mayor of new york city um and celebrity (laughs) lawyer it's like okay like what do you expect it's kind of like when donald trump is, is nailing porn stars and marrying supermodels it's like uh, okay, like what do you mean do? Like, yeah, that's what celebrity billionaires do. I'm sorry, I don't represent <laughs> it. Like, I that's what they do. I, I, they're just they're on a different it's, level. Just, it's baked a, into the cake. We know a lot of us would be doing the same thing if we <laughs> had the opportunity. I mean, I probably. I mean, I don't know. I just I, I've never been in that. Oh yeah, wait, you're both married. Never mind. Sorry, <laughs> I would be doing. Well, they are too. <laughs> but no, I totally get it. Um, you know, and I look at a lot of musicians the same way. That it's like. Like I, I mean, I don't understand. I don't. I don't envy their lifestyle. I used to when I was like a teenager. Like, dude, yeah. they get like they're just people worshiping, worry like worshiping them when they're on stage and all the girls they can get and more money you can spend. But then you realize they all die or are like like super physically ill from drug addiction and yeah. just super hedonistic behavior. Their entire life has led them to just living in hell now when they're in their forties, fifties, sixties, seventies. Like, yeah, they're generally not got, happy people. No, but there's just like all this. Except for Keith Richards, he seems to be enjoying life every second of it. He looks like shit, but he will outlive us all. I went to the <laughs> the final Rolling Stones concert in Illinois. It was it was like seeing a bunch of men straight out of the nursing home just playing concert. It was <laughs> the biggest. I I played a lot of money for that too. <laughs> it's not the final one. There's never a final one. Like yeah, Keith Richards will outlive all of us. And, you know, well, with COVID, maybe it will be. <laughs> yes, that's possible. It won't be because of drugs. It'll be because of the government. Yeah. <laughs> Don't stop touring. <laughs> oh, shoot. What did I want to talk about? Um, oh, so the big one regarding climate change. Um, I yeah. wanted to ask, I brought up uh, Randall Carlson briefly. Are you pretty familiar with his, his work? I'm not, which... to be honest. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, his, his uh, main beat is not uh, climate science. It's his thing is, uh, he's a geologist and he talks about the, um, the, the history of meteoral impacts on the earth and how that has, uh, caused cataclysmic events that like wipe out civilizations and cause floods. And he's very into like the, uh, you know, here's like what we believe to be the biblical flood and all these things, uh, looking at like the long-term view of the earth. And basically, uh, he made a point that you touched on earlier, that in the I think it was 1990, uh, like late 1990s, the U.S. launched this satellite that for the first time like had the uh, like the pixels on the camera to actually pick up the surface of the Earth and they could actually tell how much vegetation was on was yeah. on the planet. And they said they were blown away by how green it was. They're like, oh, we think that we've actually we we have more plant life than I mean it was we thought we were going to lose a certain amount based on our less est- last estimations. And they found that they actually gained a ton of this plant life uh, across North America. And 
you know, when he, when he talks about this and he's like, yeah, the reason being is because we're producing carbon dioxide, which is plant food. Like, let's not overthink this. Like yeah. plants love it. It's this give and take where, you know, it's a supply and demand thing. It's like, you know, the more CO2, CO2 we put out, the more they can absorb and the, the faster they can grow. It's like, you know, we call it the greenhouse gas effect. And it's like, okay, well, what is, what does a greenhouse do? It's like, yeah, you, it, it gets hot. But then you also use a greenhouse to grow plants really fast. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, you like, pump, yeah, you literally pump greenhouses with CO two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's what I exactly. And and you know, when you talk to uh, to lefties about this, um, they're not even interested in the conversation. Like, and I find that just intensely interesting because, I mean, he ties it into uh, you know all these lost civilizations of the past, like uh, you know, figuring out how Gobekli Tepe got there. And how old the Great Pyramids really are, and the Yonaguni Monument in Japan. Which, yeah. uh, if you haven't seen the Yonaguni Monument, have you ever heard of it? No, I actually haven't heard of that. Oh, it's Very this curious. this rock formation that the official story. Um, this is coming out of the cathedral, the the university system. The same uh, way they're sticking to the story that the Great Pyramids are only, you know, what is it, three or four thousand years old. Um, the Yonaguni Monument is uh, this this rock formation that looks exactly it looks like a pyramid, and it has all of these ninety degree rock formations, and there's like these hallways okay. and all these things, and it's fifty feet below the surface of the ocean. And I I can't remember off the top of my head, but basically they were saying or Randall Carlson was saying that the last time um, the ocean levels were that low was like twelve thousand years ago. So if this is man made, uh, yeah. we have civilizations that are far, far, far older than we think. Cause that should have just been like hunting and gathering, uh, you know, basically cavemen at that point. Real I mean, quick, now, can I ask, why, why is that blasphemy to even consider that? Like, why is it like to even say like, it might be more than 12,000 well, years old. Everyone's like, no, no, don't say that. Don't say that. It's like, well, here's why it's because, you know, this has been the working theory of let's just take Egypt since, uh, you know, the 19th century and you have all of these PhDs and universities and books written and when you have a new theory that comes along with better evidence and science that flips that on its head, all of a sudden you have all these PhDs of people who are, you know, the authorities on the issue where all of a sudden now they realize that their entire life's work is bullshit, that they, they had the, they're experts in uh, nonsense, they're black belts in bullshit. So it's like, how do you, how do you grapple with that? And it's like, wow. it's just cognitive dissonance. You just, you just pretend that it's illegitimate evidence and it's pseudoscience. That's all you that, do. You just dismiss it and hope that nobody investigates any further. That, that's so parallel. Uh, did you guys listen to uh, John McKay uh, on the Joe Rogan experience last week? Uh, he's the CEO of Whole Foods, uh, the founder of Whole Foods or co-founder. I don't know. Is no, he still involved in Whole Foods, though? He's the CEO. Oh, I, you know, I assumed yeah. that when Amazon bought them, he was no longer. All right, never mind. No, they just merged. I, I, I thought so, too. I thought Bezos owned it. But no, he's he's just the he's still the sitting CEO. He just merged with Amazon. But he okay. brought up a point that really kind of shocked my well, it didn't shock my worldview, but it it gave me the answers that I'd been asking for a long time that nobody has said to me. And he was talking to Rogan about why all of the university system, all the teacher unions, all of academia leans so radically left. Yeah. And he brought up a point that once he said it, it just clicked with me like, Oh shit, that's the answer I've been searching for. And what he said was, if you think about the people that become professors and go into academia, now these are the people who, we're straight A students. Mm -hmm. They follow the rules. They follow all yeah. the orders. They've done everything they were supposed to do. They were the straight A students. They, you know, they show up, they, they had perfect attendance. They got all the letters before and after their names. They did everything that they're supposed to do. 
But then once they graduate, they go and become professors. So the free market does not recognize nor reward these people for their efforts mm-hmm. the way that they think they should be. So they're going to a job that's like 70 to 100 grand a year while these kids are out there snorting coke and starting businesses and making 500 grand a year mm-hmm. because they're like energetic and hyper competitive and alpha mm-hmm. male personalities. And they're just like going hard. And I'm not saying all entrepreneurs like do drugs. I'm not trying yeah. to say that. I'm saying just people that are ultra competitive, like innovative, super creative, highly productive, don't sleep. They work their ass off. Those are the people that become super high status and get super high like net worth. And the people that went to academia subconsciously see that as like, Lesson. this is not fair. Yeah. Because I am the intellectual superior here. Like I have a PhD. I got, I went to all these college classes. I'm smarter than all these people. Why are they worth more? And why do people think they're more important than me? So they default to socialism and say this entire capitalist system is flawed. There's flawed. And they indoctrinate everyone in college with their ideology. That's interesting. And I was like, yeah, I heard that. And I was like, like, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, no, I mean, that that, that completely, I've, I've literally never heard that. So I'm hearing it for the first time through you. And it, it absolutely does make sense. Like, the people that go out and take risks in life, they're often not the most successful students in the world. Like the people that accomplish a lot are generally, you often hear the people like, yeah, I didn't go to class. Like I went out, I did this, I did this, I did this. And then you hear that the people that like do, do, do perfectly in class, like they end up just taking the rank and file jobs or, or becoming professors. I've never heard that opinion before. That, that actually just does make complete sense to me though. And this guy's not a nobody. Like he founded, uh, you know, Whole Foods. I know. Now I'm, now I'm wondering what his experience was with college and all that. Like, Same. And, and yeah, but when he said that, I was just kind of like, man, that makes so much sense. Like, but then I, th- like the most successful people I know in my anecdotal experiences probably like most of them didn't go to college. Some of them did, but they're the same kind of people that had they gone to college or not would have been super successful. And that's why, like, I want to be very clear that like, cause we've talked about college and college debt a couple times on the podcast. Yeah. I want to be very clear that like, I have like no like stigma against people who went to college because people have been very successful. I know that went to college, yes. but I truly believe from the bottom of my heart, had they not, not gone to college, they still would have been successful through another Avenue because they're just very driven and competitive and organized and productive people. And my most successful friend is probably, and I don't, I hope he never hears this, but he's probably my dumbest friend, but he's got the best interpersonal skills. And it's, <laughs> it's led to him being probably the most successful guy I know. Well, my well, more yeah. intelligent friends, they're, you know, I mean, they're working jobs. They're doing well. But like, well, because the, the, the one thing they never tell you in high school is that how the free market judges success, or we don't really have a truly free market, yeah, but how I mean, capitalism and this crony capitalist bullshit system we have that is semi-free in the small entry-level areas, how that is judged, uh, how that judges success is completely different than how academia judges success which is how every kid is told until they're 18 years old like yeah i'm so pissed at my high school like i'm like i i think about all the time like i was so like i had such low confidence when i graduated i had so like such misdirection like i went to a college called rock valley college for aviation uh mechanic school it was a two-year class it cost me seven grand uh, i paid it as i went but all my friends that were going to universities, they all called it behind my back and mocked me, calling, I was going to rock bottom. Oh, he's going to rock bottom. And their parents were like, oh, you're not going to university. So, like, I had, like, 
no confidence. I was like, fuck, am I making a bad mistake here? Like, I don't like, I'm afraid to borrow a hundred thousand dollars, but at the same time, yeah. like, am I making a big mistake? Because I'm going to be, they're basically to tell me I'm going to be a janitor or a McDonald's worker. If I don't go to a borrow a hundred thousand dollars right now, when I'm 17 years old. Yeah. I mean, you, you've got uh, how many kids, like three, four kids and you're like, you're, you're clearly doing fine. I mean, personally, like I don't say this a lot, but I, uh, I did three and a half years of college. I did it as a math student and as a business student. Uh, I was like a top math student for a while. And then I, I, I ended up like leaving college for my own reasons and I didn't graduate, but I, I was working four jobs at the time. I was, uh, writing for a newspaper. I was working for a startup. I was interning and I was, a. Uh, I actually ended up without finishing college. I uh, taught college math because I'm, I'm really good at math. But like in the end, I think it's mostly just a check mark people get these days. I think in the end, if you're actually good at what you do, it doesn't really matter. Like at this point, uh, it, it doesn't matter for me. Like I could probably go finish my last half a semester. Maybe I will at some point. But in, in the end, I think college is mostly not about it, it is about getting your you know degree and getting your check mark, but really what it should be about and what it's lost is learning how to think. Like I think so many people are going to college right now and they're getting gender studies degrees and I think they're getting just useless. I don't want to say liberal arts is useless, but they're getting they're they're learning to think the wrong way. And we're seeing this entire generation of people come out just learning to think about like race intersectionality and 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 just like the most useless fucking issues in the world <laughs> and and like we're not getting enough people that come out that like may not be super hyper hyper intelligent in one area but we're we're, or we're getting people hyper intelligent in one area but it's the most useless areas and we're not getting people anymore that just like go learn how to think and then actually go about their jobs i don't know i've, I've been i've soured on the entire college system in the last few years for sure and once again they, that's government to blame like they they inflated the cost so radically it's like I'm not anti-college or anti-education. Like I, I'm so pro-education. Like I never stop educating myself. I listen to podcasts and audiobooks every single weekday of my life when I'm when yeah. I'm driving to work. Um, I, I, you I know. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say it's like Mark Twain said: "I never let schooling get in the way of my education." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, like I I don't like I, I mean I keep scratching my interests like and it and i'm very add i think like you know like yeah like one, one minute i'm obsessed with like barbecue and i'll spend like three weeks obsessing how to perfect my pulled pork and then like, <laughs> all of a i'll be like, obsessed with austrian economics and then i'll be obsessed with 1970 pontiac gtos and like it, it's like but it keeps coming together it's like well now i know a lot of shit about uh, real niche areas when i talk to people that they're like well wow, you're really into this and i'm like well <laughs> no, it's yeah, well, true when you talk to people about, uh, you know, if they went to college for a certain subject and then they got a job, they'll go, I mean, universally, no matter how somebody feels about higher, higher education, they'll go, yeah, I learned more on the job in my first two weeks at work than I learned in, you know, eight years of high school and college. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's because when you actually are forced to engage with something, you learn how it works. It's like, you know, I have a, you know, I have a, an aquarium hobby where I have a couple like big fish tanks and I, you you know, I never, on Facebook. Oh, right. So it's like, I, uh, I have a, uh, you know, I, I was never super interested in biology or like microbiology, but it's like, I've learned so much about like nitrates and bacteria and how it grows on surface area and how that affects your nitrate levels and your pH balance and all these things. And it's like, there's a lot of science where I just picked this up out of interest because yep. I was trying to make my fish not die, you know, and it's like <laughs> when you're forced to actually when there are actual stakes, you absorb and retain information way better than if you're just trying to get a good pat on the head for being a good boy so you can get an A. 
No, I, I think I, I think I can attest to this better than most people, only because my once again my anecdotal experiences. Um, like I said, I when I graduated high school, I was like in in mass confusion on what to do. I was like, can't not get a degree, can't go straight to work because then I flip burgers. That's what I was told to do. So I I found a happy medium. When I was in high school, I took a job working at a uh, local private airport, uh, cutting grass, pumping gas, and doing bitch work. Um, but I, I saw this group of guys that were about five years older than me. They're about 21, 20, uh, you know, early 20s at their time. And they all seemed to be doing pretty well. They were mechanics at the shop. I was what was called a line guy. So I was pumping gas and, and cutting grass and, and doing all the, the scrubbing toilets, literally everything at the bottom of the barrel work. And these guys were like, I was like, man, if I could only be at their status, you know, and looking back, they're making like 13 bucks an hour and I was making, <laughs> but, um, yeah. you know, they're all doing well though. They were like, they had nice cars. They had very pretty girlfriends, fiancés, wives. Um, and you know, I got along with them very well. And, uh, I kind of looked to them for advice and, and they're the ones that kind of told me like, Hey, we went to this A and P class. Um, so I ended up going to A and P as an airframe and power plant mechanic class to work on airplanes. And I wasn't, I wasn't crazy about airplanes, but I was, I was obsessed with engines. Like I was a car nut. So I was like, well, these are piston engines and you know, it's just like cars. Um, so when I, I did a two year class where I would go to rock bottom university, I mean, sorry, rock Valley college. <laughs> um, what I was told was rock bottom. Um, and even what's ironic was I was like the redheaded stepchild of rock bottom because like, I didn't even go to the campus. I went to a airport away, like seven miles away from the campus so it's like even even rock bottom to acknowledge us like oh these are like the scum of our campus they're doing come to our you know <laughs> english classes but um when i went to school uh, we were learning to do all these different uh you know taking apart engines and stuff but that's what i was doing at work so like i would go to work then i go to school then i go back to work and i was you know paying my way through college and, and buying tools with all my paychecks. Uh, I got a discount through the aviation program. So I was buying tools with half my paychecks, paying with, for gas the other half. Um, but my, what I learned at work and what I learned at school, it like was not even the same world. So like I was, I was working, taking engines apart. Like that was my job at work. I would just strip piston engines apart as fast as I could and clean the parts. So when the time of my school came where we had to take the engine apart, I was like, I didn't tell any of my instructors that I worked at the airport until this point. So yeah. they're like, they, they want us to stop at every step and they're going to show us how to do the next step and take off the cylinder and yeah. pull off the lifters. And like, I was like, brr, brr, like run on the engine. It's like, boom, like had the whole engine stripped down in about three hours where the rest of the class were like, you know, had the valve covers pulled off and were cleaning, uh, you know, like some timing cover gaskets and stuff. <laughs> but um, it came really clear. And I was like, I, I got out of that. And I was like, man, I learned so much more at, work than at school like it wasn't yeah. even this, like it was so astronomically different and and I, that's kind of really skewed my take on schooling versus anecdotal work experience yeah i mean on my on my personal time i ended up becoming like a huge computer hacker for many years it's not anything i learned in school but like at one point i uh i had all cable like this isn't the most legal thing in the world but i had stolen free tv and i could get every single channel in the world like instantly I got every single show or movie within 15 minutes of it releasing instantly for free. 
I uh, would hook people up with like these, at, you know, I ended up forming a business with this, but I would hook people up with these free cable systems, which cost me zero dollars to hook up. And I would charge them a couple thousand dollars to hook up for them. But I'm carrying cable guy. Or uh, I can hook you up. <laughs> yeah, no, but like I could, and I could hook up with everything. So like in the end, like the thing that I did the most in college is like, I could, you know, here's something that's cool. I could get like a phone that was years old and I can make its battery last over a week. Like I would do this thing where I would send less voltage from like the battery when the screen was turned off than the actual operating systems. I mean, all in all, the, the point of the matter is like, yeah, you learn so much shit just like on your own time, just doing what you want to it, do. It's because it's really, it's because it's genuinely interesting to you. Yes. Like unlike high school, it's like, I, okay, I literally thought I hated reading. Mm-hmm. Like my entire life like i thought i hated reading but then i realized no i hated high school reading because they made me read shakespeare when i was fucking 16 years old okay and I had zero interest i was the opposite i loved reading so much and i read so much and then i got to high school reading and then i was like well now i hate reading it's like, the same thing got out, it's like now i do I, I do audiobooks like i probably do 40 to 50 bucks a year, or, or 40 to 50 books a year yeah same. listening and then um I, I probably read another five, like because I it's so limited time with the kids, but it takes me yeah. a long time to power through an actual physical book. <laughs> but yeah, it's like I it, I had to click and just come to to realization that I don't hate reading. I just hate being told what to read. Agreed. Yeah, it's Nick? like imagine if you if you really hate like uh you know red onion, and then somebody's like, no, you're gonna eat red onion every day for lunch for your entire life, you know, from five to eighteen. And it's like, man, I just really hate food. And then you get out and you're like, oh, I can eat whatever I want. It's like, no, I don't hate food. I just, I hate red onion because it was involuntary. You know? That was actually, that was pretty good. I didn't know where you were going with that when we started. And I was like, oh shit. All right. This is actually pretty I good. I didn't have a lot of confidence about halfway through. I'm like, I got to land this plane here. No, you did. You landed that. That was pretty good. And then you got to realize like, no, I get, actually red onion is pretty sweet raw on a burger like, in small portions. <laughs> So, uh, well, we're, we're a little past an hour, Andy, or, uh, actually Nick, anything you want to close on any questions for Andy or Andy yourself, anything you want to bring up that you want to touch on? Uh, I can, I mean, I can point you all towards all my stuff. So go to climaterealism.com If you're interested in just, you know, general climate realism stuff, we, we take random news articles of the day and then we strip them back to like what they actually are saying and what, what's really going on. I, I put out a video every day. If you follow us on Facebook at climate realism, Today, I talked about uh, Greta Thunberg. She said that we uh, shouldn't shop on Black Friday. I uh, disagreed, partly because I love Black Friday, partly because, like, I think a lot of people are struggling right now and it might help them, and partly because who the fuck cares? Like, hey, go- can I stop real quick? Yeah. About Greta Thunberg. Uh, yeah. One thing that never came up. So, about her, is yeah. she a prop with handlers telling okay. her what to do? I don't know. Yes. <laughs> I mean, she's she's got to be like she's 17. She I, I think she's really is genuine about this, but oh, I also sure. don't think she's like sitting there on her computer every night researching like she has. She's a media figure like no one in their right mind should think Greta Thunberg is leading the Greta Thunberg show. And she clearly has some kind of um, disability in some way i don't want to be i'm mean, careful my words here yeah i mean she's minorly autistic like yeah like yeah. And, and i feel like How that's like their you? insurance exactly that's like their insurance so you can't critique her it's like don't criticize her she's, okay she's, like, she's a minor it, and she uh, has a slight disability it's, it's like a video bunny thing 
like that. You wouldn't punch a guy with glasses, would you? You know. (laughs) (laughs) I had to do a 30 second disclaimer. Like, I really don't want to talk about this girl. Like, she's a young girl with disabilities. Like, but I'm going to. I feel like she's being used. I'm not trying to be a a bull. I have like, obviously, I would never try to be malicious towards anybody with any kind of disability. But I feel like they are using her as a vehicle to push their agenda absolutely and and to make us be like we can't say anything about her because she's a minor with a slight disability yeah no you're i mean i i just agree i have nothing else to say i agree with you all right so i'm gonna hang and not you (laughs) 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 mike that's insulting the girl i i just hey you agreed on air (laughs) this is not a lost tape so all right dude well th- thanks again for uh for joining us hey, well, real quick if you want to talk about the heartland institute too yeah okay so I, I i'm part of the heartland institute uh if you're interested in free market issues for social and economic problems check out heartland.org uh check out us on facebook we put out some memes we put out articles and then check out climate realism on facebook that's uh growing really quick um Every day we put out articles, just regular media stories versus what's really going on. I put out a video every day. You can check out my face. It's average at best. Uh, but it's it's good stuff. I'd, I'd, I'd check it out. Cool. All right, Andy. Thank cool. you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Nick. Balls to the wall. Yeah, thank you. I, I like balls it. To the wall. It, it sounds like balls to the wall. And that's why I know I, that was the joke, right? I assumed that was the joke. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Never know. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.